Good evening. My name is Kirk Monroe, and welcome to my History 101 podcast. I am an avid history buff. My mission is to inform you, the listener, a variety of topics which I will share, ranging from book reviews, historical events, and historic places. Well, history itself is a variety of subjects. It's often a vague uh, term. So how do you best go about defining what history really is? Well, take, take a particular event or a particular period in time. What are my favorite areas of history? The American Revolution, learning about our forefathers like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, Patrick Henry, George Washington, countless others, to other historic events like the War of 1812, which is often referred to as America's Forgotten War. To narrow it down for tonight's discussion, we're going to be talking about an event that occurred 250 years ago. Matter of fact, the anniversary was back on March 5th of 1770. But what happened on March 5th of 1770 was not a one-night event. Most of us should know what March 5th was all about. The, the heading or title being the Boston Massacre. However, I'm here to tell you all that massacre, the term massacre, was a lot different in the 18th century compared to today's world. Up until 1770, people rarely died from violence in terms of gun violence. If you had mass casualties in a, in a particular town or city, it was related to disease. As we know, in colonial days, diseases ravaged many cities and towns that resulted in loss of life and death on an epic scale. Well, what was going on in the world in between the time of 1760 and 1770? Before we get to that, just recently I finished a book written by Dan Abrams titled John Adams Under Fire, a New York Times best-selling book. If most of you who aren't familiar with Dan Abrams, he is the chief legal affairs correspondent for ABC News. In his book, John Adams Under Fire, The Founding Fathers' Fight for Justice and the Boston Massacre Murder Trial, truly is the first book that details what really happened leading up to the night of March 5th, 1770, and the aftermath of the incident. So, what was going on right before 1770, or should I say March 5th of 1770? Well, first off, Boston, Massachusetts was the cradle for what we now call revolution in in the 13 colonies. Massachusetts was the most vocal and the most, what you probably would say, patriotic to a degree, in, in part by the Sons of Liberty. After all, five years earlier, in 1765, Parliament passes what we now call the Stamp Act. 
Basically, the Stamp Act imposes, um, gives Parliament the broad authority to tax people, or should I say the colonists, whereas King George III often would refer during this time as his ungrateful subjects, who were starting to question whether or not they should be engaging in the duties of the mother country, and that is supporting taxes without the consent of the governed. In other words, it's one thing to be governed by an institution above you, but if you are not properly represented, then how do you have a voice in your government? This is what many Bostonians were beginning to question. How is it that they live in one part of the world, in Parliament, England in another, there's no binding, or should I say unity, between the the institution above and the people below. So when this piece of legislation is passed, the cry is taxation without representation. And I've come to learn recently that it wasn't Patrick Henry or John Adams that came up with that slogan. A man named James Otis, who is a part of the Sons of Liberty group, along joined by Paul Revere, John Hancock, Sam Adams, Dr. Joseph Warren, who vocally supported the rally cry of taxation without representation. The good news is that within a year's time, Parliament was smart enough to repeal the Stamp Act. But all hope for peace was... um, turned aside when Parliament decides to pass in 1767 the Townshend Acts. The Townshend Acts were in honor of Charles Townshend, who, by the help of Parliament, passed laws that uh, led to duties on um, products or what we call items such as tea, glass, paint, lead, another slap in the face without proper representation. This leads to anger, civil unrest, to the point where Parliament decides to send about 2,000 troops to Boston in 1768 to quell the unrest. 2,000 troops may seem like a lot. The problem is is that when, when Captain Thomas Preston and eventually Thomas Gage, or I should say General Gage, come to Boston, they don't realize what they are probably going to be going up against. The people of Boston are very resilient people. They've endured many hardships, but they've come through. But what the British forces don't realize by this time is that they are entering a very, very hostile environment. The way I like to look at it is this. The British Empire by this time represents an elephant, a large empire. And the people of Boston, or should I say Massachusetts, are like mosquitoes. Why am I making this comparison? Because mosquitoes can come from all different directions to attack on the uh, invaders, in this case being the British army, the British garrison of troops. They are coming from all directions to say, hey, we're not going to be treated like dirt. We are going to stand up for what we believe is right. If it means putting up a fight, we will do it. If it means ultimately in the end going to war. Now, 
as we get to 1770, prior to 1770, the, once the British arrived to Boston, tensions continued to mount. The British soldiers find it appropriate to, um, in some instances, uh, harm innocent civilians. And in return, some British soldiers have made themselves have made themselves so comfortable that they end up blending into um, various families of high Boston society. And in some instances, some British soldiers marry into well-to-do families who obviously are loyal to the crown. Well, we've all been told that the vast majority of Bostonians were anti-loyalists, which is the case. It does turn out that there were many Bostonians who were loyal to the crown. And those who were loyal to the crown were not um, immune to any, what do you call, harassment or any kind of... um, Immunity. Many loyalists were tarred and feathered, but the, wor- the but the people who endured the most harassment were the customs collectors, or should I say, tax collectors. It's one thing to ta- to collect revenue from people, but given all the un- all the unfair um, laws that Parliament passed, it made it very burdensome for those who never had a say in government to begin with. Therefore, the tax collectors not only just received verbal threats, in some instances, some tax customs officials had their homes vandalized and in, and in return were forced, in some cases, to resign, to go back to England, or, or in some cases even met a fateful, tragic death. These were not, these were not peaceful times. So, my, I'm here to tell you all that what ultimately happened on the night of March 5th, 1770 did not just happen overnight. What we do know is that civil unrest has been around since the beginning of time. The bigger question we all have to, what we all have to decipher is, was all of Boston responsible for what took place in that infamous Boston massacre? Having read Dan Abrams' book, John Adams Under Fire, has led me to believe a number of things. I can tell you one off the bat, that both parties bear fault to what happened. However, as this, as I've said earlier, this will not be a one-night discussion. This will be a, a multiple-night discussion because I don't believe you can tell everything in one night. What I do want to emphasize here is that In 1770, the loss of life was just as powerful as it it would be in today's time. However, when most people, if most people were to find out that five people died in a shooting in 1770, most people wouldn't think of that as being a massacre. I probably would agree on one hand myself. However... I have never known any historic event leading up to 1770 in the 13 colonies that resulted in a loss of life where more than one person died. Now, now, don't assume that just five people were gunned down. A total of 12 people total were shot, seven were wounded, and they survived. However, four of the five civilians who died that night died at the scene, One of the five 
died ten days after his wound, which I was blown away at because most people who were shot probably would not have lived as long as, say, ten days. Massacre is a very tragic thing, but in 1770, when the other colonies learned that five people died in one night by means of gun violence, it shook a lot of people. And I have no doubts that many of those people probably thought to themselves, hey, are we next? What's going to be in store down the road? Of course, those who were loyal to the crown would have probably said, oh, those five got what they deserved. Or those people of Boston are are causing so much trouble that maybe we don't want to have anything to do with them. Well, the bottom line is the night of March 5th, 1770 laid the foundation for what would come in the short years ahead leading up to 1775 and ultimately to 1776. But I will say this, in 1770, most most, uh, colonists in the 13 colonies still remained loyal to the crown. While, yes, there were injustices by Parliament with their unnecessary legislation, it would only take a few years after 1770 for things to really escalate. But as for tonight, our focus will remain on what happened in 1770 with the Boston Massacre. Now, what I want you, the listeners, to think to yourself is this. What did the civilians have on them? What kind of objects do you think that one could have used to have thrown at a British soldier? Well, I can tell you right now, there were no such thing as hand grenades. How about oyster shells? How about snowballs? How about how about hard ice? How about clubs or cajels? Objects that were what do you call it real and objects that could damage. Have we ever thought about what it means to assemble and petition? Well, that is one of our rights in the Bill of Rights under the First Amendment. But, of course, there were no Bill of Rights in 1770. But is it safe to say, though, in 1770 that people did have the right to assemble and petition? Absolutely. Is it safe to say that the British troops on the night of March 5th, 1770, had the right to patrol the necessary areas that were um, instructed up upon their superior officers to do so? Absolutely. Does Do we as individuals have the right to harass someone when that individual has not posed a threat to us? No. Do we have to agree with everything that the opposition does? No. But do we have the right to harass someone left and right to the point where They have no other choice but to take matters into their own hands if it means a matter of life and death. This is a yes or no question. But in 1770, eight soldiers were put to the test on the night of March 5th. They were put to the test by an unruly crowd of people, or rather I should say a mob. And here's another one. When we think of mob, we often think of organized crime. 
We think of people like the Gaudis and the Gambinos. But in 1770, a mob was referred to as an unruly crowd, people who were often described in Parliament as rabble, people who were not your most educated, low class. It actually turns out that those who were described as being in the mob were actually not of low class. We might think of them as middle class, people who were desperate for a voice, people who wanted to be heard, but whose pleas for help or for pleas for recognition had been, had been ignored because they never had, perhaps they didn't have a whole lot of say in government to begin with. It's one thing for a mob to assemble and petition to voice their displeasure over the presence of a, say, a standing army, which they saw this British garrison as being. Standing armies, even in England, were referred to as a threat because many in England did not have a voice in their government. Only those who were wealthy and well-educated had a say in their government. The Bostonians, in order for them to be equally represented, they needed to have a say in the government. So by forming mobs, this was their way to assemble, petition, get the word out that, hey, we are not going to be trampled on by a presence of a British by presence of British soldiers who are on our territory without consent. So, what happens on March 5th? Well, not so much on March 5th. A few nights before March 5th, hostilities break out. Hostilities break out between the mob and the soldiers. Not just eight soldiers, but other soldiers. There's constant fighting between the parties, with no resolution in sight. The night of March 5th, 1770, is the straw that breaks the camel's back. After protesters had been warned to go away, they kept shouting huzzas, they kept shouting chants, they kept harassing the soldiers, not so much by means of verbal threats, They threw objects at them. A couple of them were knocked to the ground to the point where one of the soldiers, not the commander, but one of the soldiers said, damn you all, fire. And so shots are fired. Five people are shot. Others are wounded. And not by means of rifles, but by means of bayonets. You know, it's funny how historians for years had told previous generations how everything all just happened in one night and that innocent bystanders died at the, at the recklessness of the British force who fired into the crowd. Well, history has gotten it wrong that the Boston Massacre did not just happen in one night. It was a series of events that happened over a five to ten year span, most notably within a five year span, that led to the straw breaking the camel's back on the night of March 5th, 1770. And in the next few nights, I will be looking forward to sharing with you all the outcome, not just the outcome, the aftermath of what happened on that night, but the trial part. Why, in other words, why did it take so long for there to be a trial? Well, I'll give you a hint. 
one of our forefathers, a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was an ardent patriot, but he was also a lawyer, and he also happened to die on July 4th of 1826, the same day that Thomas Jefferson died, John Adams. John Adams, yes, participated in the trial for the Boston Massacre. Not just one trial, but two trials. We've all been told there was only one trial, but in fact there were two. John Adams was a very successful lawyer, and his presence in this trial helped shape not just the current situation of the actual trials themselves, but the future of American law. This is all the time we have for tonight, people. It's been great chatting with you and getting my name out. I look forward to chatting with you all again before week's end with the next part of Dan Dan Abrams' novel, John Adams Under Fire, The Founding Fathers' Fight for Justice in the Boston Massacre Murder Trial. Stay tuned and have a good evening. Take care. Good night. Good evening, people. Welcome back to another session of History 101 podcast. We have more exciting stuff to share about the Boston Massacre. Yes, we talked a lot last night about how and why the massacre occurred, but at the same time, it turns out that there were some other things that didn't get shared last night that should have been. So, What are we going to primarily talk about in terms of other things? Well, for starters, we'll discuss Boston as a city and what the city represented in terms of business. And secondly, we also have to talk about certain things that prior to the Stamp Act of 1765. In other words, what else, what other pieces of legislation were there that led, that ultimately led to that famous cry of taxation without representation. We also must be reminded that even before 1760, relations between the 13 colonies and the mother country, being England, were actually relatively good. So, lastly, we will also talk about the five victims who died from the Boston Massacre. Why should we discuss them? Well, they just weren't ordinary, everyday people, nor were, they innocent, nor were they innocent people who just happened to be at the wrong place at the wrong time. These five victims have a story to be told. They are individuals just like you and I, but their names must not be forgotten. So anyways, Massachusetts, as we all know, was settled, was explored and rather I should say settled in 1620 by the, by the pilgrims. However, Boston as a city is not established until 1630. And for those of you who don't know, Boston, believe it or not, there is a town in uh, England known as Boston, England. But then again, countless cities and towns from the 13 colonies had their origins derived from places in England with the same name. Prior to 1760, the colonists, or the colonies, and England are pretty much on good terms. 
If there are disagreements, they are rather mild. They are nothing that I would say would lead to being on a scale of a 10, being profound and severe to where military force would have to come in to solve any issues. However, by 1760, King George III comes into power, and we are really halfway through what the Europeans referred to as the Seven Years' War, but as the American colonies referred to as the French and Indian War. One of George III's biggest assignments in 1760, when he is officially coronated as King of England, is to have Parliament decide that it would be best for the colonies to help assist financially with the cost of the wars. And who is the most outspoken leader other than King George III in Parliament? That answer is none other than William Pitt, who was an Earl of Chatham. How ironic, if you want to know how, why the last name Pitt is so unique, is because in Virginia, for example, there's Pittsylvania County, and then there's Chatham, Virginia. Well, there's Chatham, England, another example of a town from England that has a connection here in Virginia. And believe it or not, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, which at one time was the westernmost city, or I should say the westernmost point of the 13 colonies before expansion into what we now would know as the Northwest Territory of Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, and Wisconsin came about. So Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is connected to William Pitt. As for Boston, Boston is a seaport town. As we all know, it's on the coast. It's not just on the coast, but Boston thrived as a commercial hub for goods coming into, into Boston from England and being shipped out of Boston over to the mother country. Boston was, wasn't just the only thriving seaport town in Massachusetts. To the north lied Salem, Marblehead, and Gloucester. And believe it or not, sometimes Marblehead and Salem had more um, commerce uh, flow coming in and out than Boston. But nonetheless, Boston prospered as a true commercial hub. By the time 1764 arrives... Even more, even more issues lie at stake. The Sugar Act in 1764 leads to further alienation of the colonists. Parliament's passage of this act basically tightened trade restrictions and increased costs while reducing legal options available to fight charges. In response, at various Boston town meetings, Many people started to see this as a violation of taxation without representation. So in other words, we're all led, we've all been led to believe that the Stamp Act of 1765 was the straw that broke the camel's back when it came to taxation without representation, but it turns out that an earlier piece of legislation known as the Sugar Act laid the seeds for what would become a year later as the rally cry of taxation without representation. And once all these measures are passed, what comes next? Boycotts. Not just boycotts of British goods, 
but ultimately riots, chaos, conflict, turbulence, homes being of those who were loyal to the crown, not just their private homes, but their businesses were plundered. And as I said yesterday, yes, even though the Stamp Act was repealed, there wasn't a whole lot of rejoicing in the end because Parliament did pass, as I said yesterday, the Townshend duties, which laid, in, laid levies, or should I say taxes, on an array of imports ranging from lead, paper, paint, to uh, glass, uh, tea, anything that could be deemed taxable, but there again, without representation. So, what, what profession is it safe to say that many Bostonians held? Well, most Bostonians could have worked in a variety of different fields, but it's safe to say that the vast majority of the, of the people of Boston were in the shipbuilding industry. And, that, and being in shipbuilding is more than just being on a ship. You have rope makers, you have caulkers, you have people uh, fixing ships, making masts for schooners, you have people just doing an array of things. After all, ships have to come and go, but people have to be assigned to perform a variety of tasks. And not just the people at the helm making the ships, but the people who are on the ships for voyages coming in and out of town. Ironically, sailors were often, yes, sailors were considered valuable, but they often got a bad rap. And the reason for that is because sailors were seen as rough class. History has shown that tavern keepers were very hesitant to give sailors credit. Why is that? Because sailors were often unreliable when it came to paying a tavern keeper back. And because of that, sailors were often responsible for keeping their crew at bay and delaying their, their voyages, not only out of Boston, but to other destinations to bring goods to people in other parts of the world. One item that was very dependent on uh, shipping out of Boston was cod. Not just, you know, the fish that we eat, but salting the cod down and transporting it to places in the West Indies and the Caribbean. And people think today that we have what we know is a modern-day global economy, but it turns out that there was a global economy even in the 18th century, and shipping out cod from Boston was a prime example of it. So, now that we are into the year 1770, a terrible incident has occurred, a massacre. As mentioned last night, in the 18th century, no one in colonial America had ever witnessed a killing that resulted in the loss of multiple people. And when we talk about the loss of multiple life in one night being five people, that did send shockwaves. So, who are these five people that died? Are they martyrs? Were they instigators? Were they at the wrong place at the wrong time? Well, I did some research and on these five men through the book Dan Abrams wrote, being John Adams Under Fire, and his 
founding and his fight for justice in the Boston Massacre murder trial, these five men, whose names ranged from James Caldwell to Samuel Maverick to Crispus Attucks, Samuel Gray to Patrick Carr, their ages range from 17 all the way to 52. Believe it or not, two of the five, I should say 40%, were at age 17, James Caldwell and Samuel Maverick. Patrick Carr was 30, Crispus Attucks 47, Samuel Gray 52. So, you know... It's hard to imagine that two of the victims, being 17 years old, died. In today's time, you're not even considered an adult. But in 18th century, being at the age of 17, you might as well have been considered an adult, considering that life expectancy wasn't high for people in general. But if a child made it past the age of 10, that was perhaps a good sign of things to come. Well, let's start with uh, James Caldwell. He served as a sailor. Ironically, he was, he was not from Boston, but he had recently sailed from the West Indies and was spending time in Boston in large part because he was in a relationship with a woman from a reputable family. The name of that woman's family was not shared in Dan Abrams' book, but it was quoted as saying that, she, that the woman herself came from a reputable family. So more than likely, this woman obviously had to have come from a family that um, was high society and probably did have several ties to the maritime industry in Boston. Now, something else interesting to point out, not to get off track, but it does tie in with the Boston um, shipbuilding uh, maritime industry, John Hancock, who went on to be a signer of the Declaration of Independence, and he was also a part of the Sons of Liberty organization, John Hancock, believe it or not, would become the only signer of the Declaration of Independence. And of course, that's the last thing that's on everyone's mind. But think about this, people. John Hancock was the only person of our founding father, or I should say forefather, who witnessed King George III be coronated in England in 1760. Now, of course, when John Hancock saw this happen... He never thought in his wildest dreams that there would be a declaration, or should I say a separation, from the mother country. He was a very wealthy merchant. As a matter of fact, he was one of the wealthiest merchants in Boston. Not just in Boston, but perhaps in all of Massachusetts. So John Hancock had a lot at stake. He too saw injustices, and as a result of that, he, along with Paul Revere, Sam Adams, James Otis, Dr. Joseph Warren, and a handful of other Bostonians, and believe it or not, Patrick Henry from Virginia were a part of the Sons of Liberty. But back to the victims, we go to Samuel Maverick, who is the other individual that died at the age of 17. He was an apprentice to a carpenter named Isaac Greenwood. He was learning to become what we call an ivory turner. That was something I had never known until just recently when I read this book. An ivory turner basically is one who studies a craft in which many objects, especially from delicate fans to durable teeth, were carved on a lathe. And 
for those of you who don't know what a lathe is, and even I learned this myself just recently, a lathe is a machine tool that rotates a workpiece about an axis of rotation. In other words, it can perform operations like cutting, sanding, to drilling. In the end, the objective is to create objects with symmetry. So we can say that all five, these two men were employed in some unique professions, but now we have to eventually ask ourselves, what made these people go off the deep end? I wouldn't say they were nutbags, but a lot was riding at stake. And the same could be said for the others, which we will read about here shortly. Now moving on to Samuel Gray, who, as I had mentioned earlier, was the oldest of the five victims at age 52. He was the first person to be shot on the night of March 5th, 1770. He sadly was shot in the head by one of the British soldiers, and as witnesses described, his head wound was like the, like the equivalent of a hole, but as big as a hand. That, to me, is a very frightening wound. Historians now believe that he could have been deliberately targeted, and one would say, now, how would you believe what they would say? Well, historians know, and especially through Dan Abrams' book, that Mr. Gray had engaged in scuffles on numerous occasions with British soldiers during the time of occupation from 1768 up until the night of March 5, 1770. But Mr. Gray himself was a laborer at a rope workshop, and his hobby on the side was, of scrim was that of scrimshaw. And in case any of you know what scrimshaw is, it's carving of whalebone or ivory. We now next move to Crispus Attucks. I find him to be very interesting, along with the next person I will mention after Crispus Attucks. Crispus Attucks was the son of an African-American father and a Native American mother. So in other words, he came from mixed, from mixed um, race lineages. His real name was Michael Johnson, but he has often been referred to as Crispus Attucks. He worked in Boston as a rope maker, and he was one of a handful of many freed servants who lived and worked side by side with white, with white people. Believe it or not, in Massachusetts society, it was common for many um, freed African-American men not only to work in the same occupation as those as people of white color, but it was also common for African American men who were freed, or and as well as African American women, to testify in court. Now, this is something that even in many other colonies, especially Virginia, the largest of the thirteen, that that practice never would have been allowed. But in Massachusetts. Freed African-Americans had the right to testify in court. Crispus Attucks was very um, involved in Boston um, society, not in terms of any high-ranking position, but he knew Boston well. He knew the streets. He knew how to maneuver around in society in terms of um, getting to know other people. So it wasn't just working as a rope maker, 
but he knew all the ins and outs with the shipbuilding profession. He was um, to though there are people who see him as a martyr, as a, in other words, a hero. And this is uh, this will be a debate for some time to come. Yes, he may have served; his presence may have served as a symbol on the night of March fifth, seventeen seventy, for liberty to those who were enslaved and free. However, I will mention this at a later time when we get to the heart of the trials especially with John Adams's role. But there were those who saw Crispus Attucks as an instigator, not a hero. Why an instigator? Because he was at the forefront of the protesting, or should I say of the protesting movement. In other words, he um, helped lead a march of followers. In other words, people who joined his cause and wanting to go about making the lives of British soldiers difficult. In other words, making their jobs difficult and patrolling the streets, keeping order. So he helped lead the march of other protesters from Dock Square to King Street. Now, King Street is where ultimately where the massacre takes place. It's also the, the street where the custom house, of where the British soldiers, or should I say the garrison, um, had their um, barracks where they were stationed. Crispus Attucks was the second person who was shot that night, the night of March 5th. Historians know that he was struck twice in in the chest. One shot destroyed his liver, and he died in the street. And as I said earlier, he his presence was, yes, significant, but it will remain a a debate for a long time to come as to whether or not he was considered a true martyr or a martyr who fueled the fire. Lastly, if I had to pick, other than Crispus Attucks, if I had to pick a second person who's being the last person who died as as someone of significant uh, interest, it's an, it's an individual by the name of Patrick Carr. Why does Patrick Carr stand out as being so significant? Well, he was the fifth and final person to die from the Boston Massacre. But ironically, it wasn't until I read Dan Abrams's book that I learned of how he died, and not so much how he died, but realizing that he was the only victim of the five who did not die on March 5th. He, he was wounded in the, in the hip. It turns out that he died roughly 10 days later from his wound. He was an Irish immigrant, roughly about 30 years of age, and he worked as a leathersmith. It turns out Mr. Carr was the only victim who was of non-Protestant denomination. In other words, he was a Catholic. And there were many uh, Catholics from Ireland who came over to colonial America. Now, a little interesting 101 trivia to point out that Catholics, for quite some period of time, were excluded from holding political office. 
In other words, the only people who could hold any kind of political office in the vast majority of the 13 colonies were men of Protestant um, denomination. In Virginia, for example, a, pro a, a man who was a Protestant denomination who was well-to-do and owned a vast amount of land had to have adherence to the Anglican Church, or what we call the Church of England. Just because you were Protestant... In some cases, it didn't mean that you were automatically guaranteed a political position within the community or in your elected body of government. Patrick Carr, being of Catholic faith, had a significant presence on the night of March 5th. When he, um, when he was wounded, he was taken um, to a makeshift hospital. He had, um, believe it or not, the doctors who tended to him up, up until the day he died were two doctors by the name of Drs. Jeffries and Dr. Lloyd. Why are their names significant? Well, it turns out that these two doctors were pro-crown. In other words, they were loyalists to, to the mother country. Patrick Carr gave testimony to these doctors while fighting for his life. There are a variety of things that, um, or should I say various things that Mr. Carr told the doctors. For one, he gave his testimony confirmed that the mob, or should I say that uh, the unruly crowd who instigated the ultimate um, straw that broke the camel's back that night, had harassed and threatened the soldiers with all kinds of insults and chants to the point where it was just a matter of a short period of time before the inevitable would happen. He saw unruly crowds, being the mob, even go so far as to throwing objects like hard ice, snowballs, oyster shells into the sentry's surroundings that resulted in, in having in the soldiers, or should I say the British soldiers' guns being hit. He, he did admit that in the end, the soldiers who who fired into the crowd were in fact abused to where their personal safety lied in jeopardy. He said that the soldiers firing into the crowd, the firing itself was meant to defend the group as one entity, in other words, saving themselves. How could one say all this on their deathbed? It took a lot of guts. Was Mr. Carr leading a double life? In other words, why did he get involved in, a, in, a, in an event that perhaps he should have thought about twice being involved in before getting shot? Well, to answer that question, we can dig into a little bit of Mr. Carr's past. He's, he was from Ireland. Where in Ireland, it's not said. But he had witnessed several encounters between the mob or the, unruly, the, the, crowd, the, the crowds in Ireland who, say, did not have any proper political say in their government and soldiers of the mother country engage in hostile tension amongst each other to where those painful memories all came back to light on the night of March 5th. 
it's ironic that Mr. Carr admitted that as tense as the standoffs were in Ireland between the the ordinary people, or should I say the mob, and the soldiers, what he saw in Massachusetts was far more extreme regarding treatment of soldiers. Perhaps it's safe to say that Mr. Carr did not witness mob crowds hurl objects at soldiers. The closest thing he probably saw to brutal treatment would have been the chanting of threats and shouting obscenities. It's one thing to shout an obscenity and hurt and make a threat at a person of higher rank. It's another thing to, to start throwing objects at them to the point where personal safety becomes a, an issue, and in some cases a matter of life and death. It turns out that even one of the doctors had told Mr. Carr that if he were to make a full recovery and survive his wound, that he was to never, ever participate in another act of um, mob violence. So, Mr. Carr ironically expressed remorse at being present while this rioting took place. He, he even often called himself a fool on his deathbed for having gotten caught up in a bad moment. And how true it is that all of us in our lifetime have gotten caught up in a bad moment or two, big and small. It's up to us as individuals on how we choose to learn from those mistakes. Patrick Carr was willing to learn from his mistake. It turns out that the best thing he did for himself before he died was to tell the doctors who treated him what had really happened. Mr. Carr, in the end, ultimately passed away. But in the end, it's safe to say that despite his death, he still went to his grave with a clean slate. In other words, he didn't go to his grave taking secrets, or should we say, hiding skeletons. Many years before 1770, or I should say in the 18th century, Dan, Ad Dan Abrams pointed out in the book that back in the 13th century, the English courts accepted a following doctrine known as the following, Nemo moraturus presumatur mentiri. A dying person is presumed to not be lying. The belief, or should I say principle here, emphasizes that a dying person wouldn't risk meeting the Lord with lying words still present in his, in his mind, or should I say, on his slate or chest. In other words, Mr. Carr didn't take secrets to his grave, but instead revealed how tense the situation became due to uncontrolled emotions on the part of the mob. And this will be said later at another time. John Adams ultimately said this, but it's safe to say that any of us could say this. It's one thing to get caught up in the moment, but uncontrolled emotions, or emotions in general, can't alter the facts surrounding any situation, big or small. So, Mr. Carr, when Mr. Carr died, 
he was buried alongside with the other four victims. And yes, those who survived the massacre and those who weren't involved in it, but empathized with those who were hurt, who did live despite being wounded, saw those who died as martyrs. Perhaps they had those who weren't involved and yet were still affected by it, did have a right to, to view Mr. Carr as a martyr. But here's something that we should learn and keep in mind. While Mr. Carr and the other four victims are all buried together, one thing to remember is that it's one thing to be a martyr, but dying for something doesn't always grant someone a free pass into heaven. Telling the truth before death, in the case of Mr. Carr, enabled his sins to be washed away. So Mr. Carr was forgiven by the good Lord above. I'm not saying here that the other four victims didn't deserve to be forgiven, but Mr. Carr was spared for an extra ten days that enabled him to have time to realize what he had done and perhaps send a message to future protesters or to future people, to, in other words, to say, hey, you may not like what's going on, but be careful about your involvement. It's one thing to be opposed to something. It's another thing to go about getting involved in something and not knowing where to end the where to lay a line on boundaries there are boundaries to everything in life but we as individuals have to decide for ourselves what's appropriate and not appropriate to be involved in there will be more to discuss in the next session of 101 history podcast when we do convene next, we will talk about the British and the soldiers who fired into the crowd. Why is that important? Because they too have a story to be told. And I can tell you this right now, that the vast majority of the British soldiers who served in the, in, under the king during the American Revolution did not come from well-to-do families. As a matter of fact, the vast majority of them came from lower ranks of society. As a matter of fact, many of the British soldiers came, could have, were more than likely convicted felons who were trying to get their criminal records clear, and the only way for them to stay out of trouble was to serve in the king's army. But in the meantime, it's been uh, a pleasure to share with you, to share with you more information that... Um, will lead us down the road to understanding why this event has an important significance even in the world we live in today. But one thing to constantly remind ourselves is that the world of 1770, while yes, it wasn't perfect, and yes, there was a loss of life involving five people, it doesn't compare to what we know today in a world that is far more unstable than what, what it was in 1770. Thank you, and have a good night, and I look forward to chatting with you all again here soon. Take care.